0: Well, we are two days now in front of Christmas, a time when we celebrate absolutely our dear Savior's birth. If it weren't for the birth of Christ, then there would have been no death of Christ. If it weren't for the death of Christ, then there would be no need for the resurrection of Christ. If there was no resurrection of Christ, then there would be no life in Christ. And without life in Christ, we would be separated from Christ. We would be excluded from citizenship and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope, the scriptures say, and without God in this world. So from that reasoning alone, I would conclude that the birth of Christ was not only important, but essential. (laughs) Would you agree with that? The birth of Christ was essential to bring us hope, to bring us joy, to bring a connection between the Father and us. I've heard it said that at Christmas we should preach the death of Christ. And at Easter we should preach the birth of Christ. And when preparing sermons for those two occasions, those very special Christian celebrations, I can see just how easy it is to flow between those two realities. You can't stay in birthing mode all the time, right? Come on, ladies, talk to me. You want the baby to come, right? So I can see how you can transition between those two realities. And it's because both events, the cradle and the cross, the delivery and the death of Jesus Christ, both of them speak of love. They speak of love. They're so much bigger than a baby being born. They're so much more than a cross. The motivation, God's heart, is love. And with those thoughts in mind, I want to minister for just a few minutes this evening through a message I'm calling Preposterous Love. Isn't that beautiful? Preposterous love. And what I want us to see through the message tonight is this, that the underpinning of God's grace is his preposterous love for humanity. When you think about the graces that we receive from the Father, and every time I turn around, I'm running into new graces. His mercies are new every day. His graces are new every day. And I know that this flows from God's heart, his heart of love, his heart for humanity. Now, that word preposterous is a word that we don't use every day. When's the last time you used that word, huh? You don't use it every day. I mean, something really has to kind of run against our grain for us to use that word. Preposterous. We get our language from the Latin, even some comes from the Greek. And Latin uses all these prefixes, right? And the prefix pre, okay? So when we think about the prefix pre, because you see that right here, preposterous. It literally means before. And I don't think any of us would disagree with that when you think about baking a pie, baking a cake, cooking a pizza, what do you do? You preheat the oven, don't you? Pre, that means before. Before you put the goods in the oven, you are preheating it. If a person wants to go and buy a home, a piece of land, whatever it may be, they typically go to their financial institution, perhaps their bank, their credit union, and they get pre-qualified. So they can determine how much of a home, how much of a piece of land they can buy. So the prefix pre means before. Now, the Latin word posturous means coming after do you see the word in there post it means after when we think about the post game show what is it it's the show that follows the game posturous means that which is coming after in other words when i speak of come on now preposterous love when i think about preposterous love. I'm speaking about a love that existed long before I took my first breath and the same love that will come after me after I've taken my last breath. Do you see how that works? That's preposterous love. It's the love of the Father. In Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, we find some loving scriptures, friends. These ought to be tattooed on every heart. We find the assurance in these scriptures of preposterous love. I think about these. Look what the Apostle Paul wrote. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's a good question, isn't it? Who's going to do it? Who has the ability to do it? Who can do it? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Heavy hitters here, right? He says, as it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long, or we face death all day long, another version says. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Sheep on their way to the slaughter, totally oblivious that they are marching to their death. Nay, he says, in all of these things, come on, he says, we are more, come on, we are more than conquerors. We have to enlarge our capacity in the way we think, and the way we see, this connection that we have with the Father. He says, we are more than conquerors, not on our own, we are more than conquerors through him. Come on, we're talking about Jesus here. We are more than conquerors through him. And then he says, that loved us. He says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, I would encourage you to memorize these scriptures so that the next time you're not feeling so loved, the next time you're feeling a bit on the fringe, maybe a little separated, because look, we have emotions. Our emotions can lie to us. The enemy can talk to our mind and lie to us. And the next time you are feeling less than a conqueror, I want you to go back to these scriptures. And if they're tattooed, if they're written, if you will, on your heart, you'll just be able to bring them up in that moment and say, no, I am more than a conqueror in Christ and nobody can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Come on, if there was something that could separate us then the Apostle Paul would have written it there, friends. There is nothing. And that's why he finishes those scriptures by saying, and nothing else in creation. Nothing, friends. Isn't that beautiful? This is why I love him so much. Is because I see how precious and how awesome and how deep and how rich and how bountiful his love is for me that there's nothing I can do to make him stop loving me. That's the Christmas message, that God loves you. That's the Christmas message. Preposterous love is the love that never leaves us. It never forsakes us. It never runs away on us. It doesn't divorce us. It's the love that we cannot become separated from. That's what the Apostle Paul just said. He said, what can separate us from the love of God? Preposterous love is the love that was shown to us while we were yet sinners. Not when we got our act all cleaned up, but while we were yet sinners. Therefore, why would it leave us when we sin? Do you see that? If this love was shown to us, if this love was given to us, if Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, then why would this love walk out on us when we sin? I'm not advocating sinning. If you're doing it, please stop. It will hurt you. But I'm just telling you, this is a love that sticks with us, friends. It's always there. It's the love that was there when we drew our first breath. And it will be the love that will be there at the end of days. It's a first love. It's a last love. Preposterous love. It's an absurd love. It's an outrageous love. It's an unbelievable and outlandish love. It's the love that is contrary. It runs contrary to our natural senses. Natural minds cannot comprehend this much love. Preposterous love is the love of the Father demonstrated for us in a cradle, then on a cross, and then through a choice. Yes, we make a choice to receive God's love. Love does not demand. Love is a gentleman. Love does not force itself upon anybody. Love has done it all. Love has prepared the way, and love says, come but we have to make a choice. It's not just the cradle. It's not just the cross. It's the choice we make. It's how we respond to his love. In John chapter 3 and verse 16, it's the greatest love scripture. I think it's one of the scriptures that almost everybody could just quote verbatim. For God so loved the world. Think about it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, do you see this? Whosoever, everybody's entitled to this love. This love was sent to everybody, for God so loved everybody, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, and that word believeth means to put your trust in. It means to put your faith in Christ. It's more than mental assent. It is me taking my heart and marrying it with God's invitation. Whosoever believeth, whosoever puts their trust in him, says right there, should not perish, but have everlasting life. In this single passage of scripture, we see the cradle, the cross, and the choice. You see, the cradle is God gave us his son as a baby first, right? And then God would give his son on a cross. Now, friends, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I'm not ashamed of this. There's not a human being on the planet that I would give my Valerie for. There's not a human being on the planet I'd give one of my sons for. That doesn't mean I'd let you go without tears now. (laughs) There'd be a lot of tears. But I want you to imagine, I want you to think about this much love. You say, oh, Pastor Mark, God knew he was going to raise Jesus from the dead. If he told me I'll raise your son from the dead, I'm just saying, well, then why don't you just raise the other person from the dead? You can't have my son. See, what I said, natural minds cannot understand, they cannot comprehend this kind of love. We just receive it by faith. We just receive it because God said so. We know his heart. So, in that passage of scripture, we see the cradle, we see the cross, but we see the choice too. Whosoever believeth in him, there's the choice. There are doctrines that are spreading across the world, inclusionism, that you don't have any choice whatsoever. God picks you, and that's just it. No, friends, that's not love. Love says you choose. I chose to love Valerie. Valerie chose to love me. This was no arranged marriage, okay? The Father gave us Jesus. And when he came, he would be wrapped in swaddling clothes, and they laid him in a wooden cradle. And then he would be unwrapped and nailed to a cross, a wooden cross. Preposterous love had given his only begotten Son. A lot of love. That's a lot of love. What will you do with a gift like that? Will you make a choice to allow him to love you in all of your brokenness, in all of your wrong-headed thinking? Friends, Jesus was wrapped when he was born. He was unwrapped when he was crucified. He was wrapped again when he was buried. And then he was unwrapped when he rose from the dead. He no longer wears, come on, he no longer wears the grave clothes of death. And through the gospel of grace, he speaks the words to us. And the words are, take off his grave clothes, take off her grave clothes and loose her. That's the Christmas message. Take away the grave clothes, loose him, loose her. Let her go. Let him go. Friends, through faith in Jesus Christ, we experience not just the cradle life and not just the cross life, but we experience the ceaseless life. (laughs) The word everlasting is defined as perpetual, forever, and without end. That sounds like ceaseless to me. How about you? Perpetual. That's how the Bible describes it. It's called perpetual life. It's called life without end. It's called forever life. This is the perpetual life and preposterous love that we possess, that we harness on the inside of us. It is the work of grace. Therefore, no man can boast. Nobody can say, look what I've done. I don't like saying that. Look what I've done. No, this is what Christ has done through me. It's what he's done in me. A Christian friend and I were having a discussion recently, and he said to me, I believe you can lose your salvation. I looked at him and I said, how do you define everlasting life? And then I just paused. How can a man possess perpetual, forever, without end, life, and then lose his life? I said, what do you do with the words that Jesus spoke when he said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hands. And I looked him right in the eyes and said, what do you do with those words? Jesus said, not a one can be snatched from my hands. How do you interpret that one? Or how do you interpret the scripture for by one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ, he has made us perfect forever? How do you interpret that scripture? My friend said, well, you know, you can, uh, you can walk away from God. And I said to him, how far do you have to walk? A mile? How far do you got to go? You see, I was reminded, and I said it to him too. David said, If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. And David said, If I make my bed in hell, he said, Behold, you are there. That comes right out of the book of Psalms. Now, come on, what do you do with scriptures like that? What you bump into is a God who's faithful to covenant. You bump into a God who will never leave you or forsake you, doesn't even allow death to snatch you out of his hand. And so we're having quite a time, right, talking with one another. He said, well, you can blaspheme, God. I said, what are the words that are so blasphemous that God would retract? My eternal life. What are those words? Because I want to avoid them for sure. What are those words? Crickets. No answer. See, we get so religious, friends. We get so religious because we've come up in an era where we've believed this and been taught this, but we don't even know why we believe what we believe. We just repeat like a parrot what we've been taught over the years. I looked at him, I said, friend, blasphemy is to die rejecting the holy spirit's invitation to come to christ and believers cannot commit it believers cannot commit the unpardonable sin why because we're already in christ blasphemy is to continuously it's not a one-time thing i rejected the holy spirit hundreds of times coming up in the church I just kept staying in my chair, sliding down in my chair. We had this one guy every time, there was an altar call. He'd start looking around. Boy, I'd, boy, he'd fasten his eyes on me like I must have had a light on my head or something. And he would always come back and sit down next to me and say, Sonny, don't you think you need to be up there at the altar and being saved? And I would just say, probably, but not tonight. So I passed on the invitation many, 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 many times. And if I would have died in that rejection, that's what is unpardonable because when you pass on the Holy Spirit, who's the only one that draws you to Christ, there's nobody left. You say no to him. Who's left? And what begins to happen is you begin to callous your heart a little bit. You get to the point where you just go, it doesn't matter to me anymore. So believers cannot commit this sin. So this is the conversation I'm having with this guy. How can believers spend their entire lives worshiping God and studying the scriptures and still not see the preposterous love of the Father? How can you do that? Well, because you're looking through a certain lens. You know, if I was to put on a welding mask, how many of you know what a welding helmet is? It's so that you can look at that intense light, the light that would burn your retinas right out of your head if you didn't put that mask down. little square plate that's really super dark. But if I was just to pull that welding mask down right in here right now, I wouldn't be able to see a thing in here. And sometimes what happens is because of what we've been looking through, that dark lens, if you will, that rose-colored lens, whatever it may be, it's because of what we've been looking through. We simply cannot see the beauty of the cross the way it's supposed to be seen. I'm talking about snatch-proof love. I like that. It's the way the Holy Spirit communicated it to me. Snatch-proof love. I'm talking about before and after love. I'm talking about rap. And then unwrapped love. Many believers have not encountered preposterous love because they have been indoctrinated to believe a narrative that is void of everlasting life. In other words, they may speak it with their tongue, but then they undo it by saying, you can walk away. You can fall away. That's not everlasting life. Friends, Jesus was born at what we call Christmas, to give us everlasting life. This is why he came. He didn't come to just make us better. He didn't come to just clean us up. He came to give us his father. He came to give us everlasting, without end, forever, life. Ceaseless life. You see, love and life, go together. If you find one, you'll typically find the other. Jesus came to give us not only life, but love. He came to give us love and life at the same time. Many have been taught that the life that Christ gives us is conditional. Come on. It's temporal. That the life that Christ gives us can be forfeited. That's so nonsense, friends. That's not a Christmas message. You know, I've already got gifts that I bought Valerie last year for Christmas that are already tore up, and I'm thinking, wow, they were nice gifts last year, and they're already tore up. He didn't come to give us a life that we could tear up. It's an eternal life. It's an everlasting life. It's a life without end. It's ceaseless. It's forever kind of life. Many have been taught, though, that they have conditional life or temporal life, that the life Christ gives us can be misplaced, forfeited, lost, and even when people are confronted with the truth in love, they reject it. Why would anyone reject truth? Why would they do that before considering it? I want to show you something. This might be a total brand new concept to you. It's called sunk cost fallacy. It's the difficulty of letting go of something because you've invested so much time and money and other resources into it. In other words, like blood, sweat, and tears. Many of you have heard me say that when we planted Triumphant Grace Ministries, we had our daughter Sarah come to our home. She had three or four song binders. She was our worship leader at our previous church. But at the previous church, we didn't have the message of grace, of God's unconditional love. And so we sang just about anything that sounded good back then. But we realize now we have the message of the finished work of the cross. We don't want to undo it during song service, right? And so there was a threshing floor in our living room that night when Sarah came. And her and her mother had different stacks that she began to put things in. This one will not make the cut. This one, this is fine. This one, not sure of. And the ones that would not make the cut were beginning to really pile up because they said things like, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I know that's in a song, right? But it's not New Covenant, friends. David was under an old covenant in Psalm 51 when he penned those words because the Holy Spirit would come and go, but that's not the Christmas message. The Holy Spirit comes and he stays and he changes our lives. And I watched Sarah, our daughter, sitting there Indian style in our floor. (laughs) My lips were absolutely zipped. I figured her mother could handle everything. I watched her in tears. Why? Because of this right here, sunk cost fallacy. She had invested the time. She invested the talent. She invested the hours, if you will, into learning those songs and playing those songs. And now we were about to strip those songs away from her. Not because we're being mean about anything, but do you understand what I'm talking about here in context of what we've been through already here? This is why people don't want to change. It's because of sunk cost fallacy. The sunk cost fallacy is difficult to deal with because it always hinges on future what ifs. What if I'm wrong? What if I have to start all over again? The Holy Spirit said to me, One day, this was quite some time after we had moved on from that church, I want you to shred your sermons. And I thought, golly, I might need these things. I might need to preach them somewhere else. I didn't want to do that. But I felt so liberated when I just took those sermons out of the file cabinet and just put them right in the shredder. Uh, (laughs) I just felt so liberated because it was almost like I had this fresh start. That's what Christmas does. It gives us a fresh start. That's what Christ does when He comes and He lives in our lives. He gives us a fresh start. It's called a new beginning. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, including your new beginning. And He would begin to build a new perspective of Him in my heart. So these what ifs come up. What if I have to let go of everything I've learned about God's love and grace? Now, what I mean by that is simply is if it's learned in a way that's not fruitful for you, then it's okay to let go of it. I'm not saying we're letting go of God, but get real with him. Get real with him and just say, Father, what is the purpose of the Christmas message? What is the purpose of Christ's coming? Well, it's to be one with us, that we might be one with him. We are one with Christ. Friends, when I speak about this sunk cost fallacy, I'm speaking from experience. I have walked down this road. Several years ago, I came to a crossroad in my Christian walk, and it was at that crossroad that the Holy Spirit convinced me to look both ways. Don't you think that's prudent? When you come up to a crossroad, you just don't look one way and proceed through the intersection, do you? And the Holy Spirit said, look, I'm going to do a work in you first and then a work through you. But I want you to look both ways. I don't want you looking down the same way that you've always looked. I want you to look at me in a fresh way. How about if you start looking at me through the finished work of the cross, the gospel of grace? And so I speak from experience. I had the choice to continue in the same direction that I had always known. See, that's the easy part. That's sunk cost fallacy. I don't have to change a thing. Or I could take a new direction. You know what I was suffering from? Sunk cost fallacy. And it was by looking another direction that I truly discovered the Father's preposterous love and his unconditional grace. After several minutes of talking with my friend, I just said, God's been good to you, hasn't he? He responded with, yes, he treats me better than I deserve. And how many of you know I couldn't leave that alone without commentary, right? (laughs) I said to him, it sounds like grace to me. My friend asked me then, he said, how do you explain why so many Christians believe so differently about grace? And that opened up a 30-minute conversation, and in short, I told him that it had everything to do with how they were programmed. I said, a few years ago, you started in this position. You didn't know anything about this position, did you? He said, no, I didn't know a thing about it. I said, now you've been indoctrinated in this position. You know lots of things about this position, don't you? He said, yes, I do. It's what gets in you. It's not just what gets on you. There were some coasters laying on his desk, and I grabbed three of them and I separated them, and I said, this coaster represents what you've learned from one minister. And I said, this coaster here represents what you've learned from another minister. This third coaster represents what you've learned by studying the Bible on your own. I said, all of this All of this, that minister and that minister and that minister and that minister and then you and your best friend, all of that is in your head. Amazing thought, isn't it? It's all in your head. How do you sort that much information? Who's right? Who's true? And so what it does is it It gets convoluted. It gets all mixed together. And then you know what happens? It loses its accuracy. Anytime you cut something that's pure, it's no longer pure. It loses its accuracy. And then... I left to drive away from the car dealership and I remembered there's this one question I've been meaning to ask them. I don't want to go through a two inch thick manual to find it. There's one question I figured I need to ask you guys and so I put my car in park and I stepped back in the dealership and my friend was right there and two other salesmen. They were all in a little row right there and I asked them the question that I wanted to know and all three of them had a different answer. And I thought, you guys, wait a minute, we're talking about the car you sold me. You guys should all be on the same page. Yet all your answers are different. Your answer is different than his. It shouldn't be that way, right? Do you see what happens when you mix stuff together? Or you don't take the time to explore? You just all end up all over the page. (laughs) Just what happened with me. You see, friends, if one is programmed, To only look into the cradle, then all they'll see is baby Jesus. And if one is programmed to look only to the cross, all they'll see is crucified Jesus. And if one is programmed to search for him among the tombs, among the graveyard, then all they'll find is absentee Jesus, because he's not there. But if one goes on a quest, a quest for preposterous love, they'll discover gracious Jesus, the one who treats us better than we deserve. It's okay to search for him. It's okay to ask questions. Be real with him, be raw with him. He delights over you. He sings over you. He dances with you. He's joyful over you. You say, Pastor Mark, what was the point for telling us about the exchange between you and your friend? I wanted us to see that we have been given a gift that is a perfect fit. This gift cannot be lost. It cannot be torn up. It cannot be destroyed. You can't backslide or moonwalk your way away from this gift. David said, if I ascend to the heaven, I bump into you. David said, if I make my bed, come on, this means you've really blown it, right? Come on, talk to me. Have you blown it somewhere in life in thought word or deed? Yes, you have. Yes, I have. David said, that's what hell is to me. When I feel like I've damaged God's heart, and we don't, friends. He loves us. He's just crazy about us. But David said, look, when that is going on in my life, when you have good reason to leave me, when you have good reason to walk away from me, I've made my bed in hell. David said, behold. You are there. I can't get away from you. Wherever I go, there you are. Isn't that beautiful? This is our Christ. This gift walks with us. He's not just a baby lying in a cradle somewhere. He walks with us. He's the perfect gift. It's Jesus himself, and he was given to us through the preposterous love of his Father, first through a cradle and then through a cross. Throughout history, we see storybook examples of preposterous love. And as I was meditating on this message, the Holy Spirit brought back a story to me that I remember preaching many, many years ago. I think it was in our first church. During the 17th century, there lived a man by the name of Oliver Cromwell. This guy had a resume. He was a statesman, a military officer, and a senior commander in the parliamentarian army. And then later in life, Oliver went on to be a politician. Oliver Cromwell was the Lord Protector of England. And while he lived in the era that he lived in, there was another man that lived at that time. His name was Basil Underwood. Basil was a common man just like you and me. He had no accomplishments. He had no accolades. Therefore, if you were to Google search his name, you'll only find it in connection with Oliver Cromwell's name. Apart from Oliver Cromwell's name, Basil would not exist in the chronicles of the history books. You see, Basil had been arrested by the Puritans and was sentenced to be shot to death for his crimes. Oliver Cromwell's soldiers were the ones that were going to perform the execution. The execution was to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. Now, Basil had a fiance. Her name was Bessie. These are some old-fashioned names, aren't they? And Bessie pleaded with the sexton. The sexton is the guy who works for the church. He takes care of the grounds. He takes care of the graveyard. He's the bell ringer at curfew. She pleaded with the sexton not to ring that bell, but the sexton refused. Bessie, like our own Gene Huff, sorry about that G, Uh, tenacity, right? You got to be a mother of four girls, right? Climb the tower to the belfry. How many of you have ever heard of bats in the belfry, right? And she clung to the great clapper. That is that pendulum device that swings against the side of that gigantic bell and makes that clanging sound, right? She clung to the clapper. The curfew bell didn't ring. And when Bessie was summoned by Oliver Cromwell to come and stand before him and to give an account for her actions, she came. Was there going to be two executions that night? Bessie came and Bessie wept as Oliver Cromwell inspected her bruised body and her bleeding hands. Oliver Cromwell's heart was so touched that he said, Your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. Friends, Jesus was like the woman who climbed the tower in that he climbed Mount Calvary. Bessie clung to the great clapper. Jesus clung to the great cross. Both were bruised and bloodied. Both sacrificed for someone that was under condemnation. That's you, that's me, that's us, that's we. Both sacrificing for someone that was under a death sentence. Lord Protector of England, Oliver Cromwell's words were, your lover shall live because of your great sacrifice. Allow that to just Sink into your heart for a moment. We're Christ's lover. He's our lover. And we live because of his great sacrifice. The cross has echoed those words for 2,000 years. Those were not the original words of Oliver Cromwell. Preposterous love was present when Jesus drew his first breath And preposterous love was present when Jesus drew his final breath. From the cradle with kisses, to the cross with hisses, to the wedding aisle with blisses, the covenant of promise has been released. And when it's been released to us, it releases a hope. And the scripture says this hope... Never disappoints us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. It's a hope that never disappoints. Never disappoints. These are God's words. That's Romans chapter 5. He's never disappointed with us. Does He want us to make better decisions? Of course. And He helps us to make better decisions. But I'm telling you, He's not disappointed with you. Let me ask a couple of questions. Why would Jesus endure such torture and such dishonor for vile, filthy, rotten, low-down sinners? Why would he do that? Come on! Why would Christ do that? The cat of nine tails pummeled his back. The crown of thorns penetrated his scalp. The nails perforated his hands and feet. The spear pierced his side. Why would Jesus allow himself to be used, abused, bruised, and refused? Come on. Why would he do this? Come on. Think largely. Because of preposterous love. Love held him on the cross. It wasn't your sins that held him on the cross. It was love that held him on the cross. Love for his father, love for humanity. See what I'm talking about? At Christmas, preach the death of Christ. Friends, we live because of Jesus' sacrifice. The curfews that Basil and Bessie were under have been long done away with. You see, back then there was such a thing Curfews were instituted as a way to restrict and to control people and to regulate people. But when Jesus died on the cross, the restriction, the control, the regulation of the old covenant was silenced through his bruised body and his pierced hands and feet. The great clapper of the old covenant shall never ring again. It's done away with, friends. Gone. I used to find the Christmas message to be one of the more challenging messages for me to preach. You want to know why? It's because I fashioned the emphasis of the Christmas message around the birth of Christ rather than the love of God. And there's only so much material about the birth of Christ, right? You see, the birth of Christ was the event. But the love of God is the empowerment to become sons of God, even unto them which believe on his name. What name am I talking about? I'm talking about Jesus, Savior, the only begotten Son of God. There's so little scriptural text about the birth of Jesus. Only the gospels of Matthew and Luke record the nativity. Mark doesn't talk about Jesus as a baby. John doesn't talk about Jesus as a baby. Paul doesn't talk about it. Peter doesn't talk about it. James doesn't talk about it. Jude doesn't mention it. The writer of Hebrews does not mention it. Babies are dependent upon somebody else, aren't they? They can't fend for themselves. They are dependent upon someone else to care for them. And unfortunately, a big percentage of the body of Christ still has a baby Jesus mindset in that he's dependent upon us, okay? God is not dependent upon us, friends. Dependent upon us to keep our salvation intact, dependent upon us to make ourselves holy, dependent upon us to keep ourselves righteous in right standing with God. Friends, it is not true. It is not true. We are the ones, come on, we are the ones that are totally dependent upon him. And it is his preposterous love That holds everything together. The Bible says by Christ all things consist. That literally means by Christ all things are held together. He's the one holding us together. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus was born on December 25th? (laughs) No? Then what day was he born on? You know, nobody seems to know. We've lost the most important birth record in the world. Nobody knows the birth date of Jesus. (laughs) The records have been lost. The general consensus by the historians and the scholars is that Jesus was born in September. But the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus is far less important than the reason we celebrate his birth. You see, when a person responds an invitation to come to your birthday party they're not coming to celebrate the day that you were born they're coming to celebrate you we celebrate christ forget genealogies and dates and everything else we celebrate the man we celebrate jesus christ that's who we celebrate I was born in 1961, and when I was born, there was almost this cultural thing that was going on that said the first baby born in the new year would receive gifts from the merchants, almost like the wise men, you know, almost like the shepherds coming. It was that way when I was born. They certainly don't do that anymore, but the local merchants would find out who the first baby was of the new year in their town, and they would give gifts to them." And because my family was so needy, my mother tried literally everything. She told me this. She said, I even took spoons full of castor oil trying to get you to come uh, out on January 1st. She only missed it by three days! I came on January 4th! (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, my birth ushered in good news, and my parents were filled with great joy. The words good news." come from the word gospel. Gospel means good news. And the one thing that I've discovered throughout my 62 years of life is that everybody likes good news. The rich love good news, the poor love good news. The healthy love good news and those that are sick love good news. The prince loves good news and the pauper loves good news. Friends, Jesus is good news and he is for everybody. No exception. Jesus is good news. I wonder exactly what Mary, the mother of Jesus, thought when she received her good news. We find this in Luke chapter 1 verses 26 through 38. It says this, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings. And he says to her, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. The scriptures say that when the angel appeared, that Mary was greatly troubled. And when we think about this word troubled, it's more than on the surface. It's not goosebumps. It means deeply stirred. It means she was impacted not just on the outside, not just through her senses, but she was deeply impacted on the inside of her. She was deeply stirred. It was a unique stirring. So unique that the word for this trouble is only used one time in the entire New Testament. It's used right there. It's the only time it's used. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. And then he says, you have found Favor. I love this word. Come on. We can't pass on this one here. It is in the Greek, hares, which means grace. He says, you have found hares. You have found grace. I love this word, hares. Matthew never used that word. Mark never used that word. John uses that word grace. John will tell us who this person of grace is, in fact. He knows this Jesus, doesn't he? Let's take a look at these scriptures. There they are. In John chapter 1, verses 14 and then verses 16 and 17, this is the only time John, the gospel of John, uses these words, this word hares. He said the word became flesh. That's the one that was born In the manger, that's Jesus. He said, that is the word. The one that was with God in the beginning. Remember that? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And here is John, he's saying, the word became flesh flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father. Look at these words, full of grace and truth. And then he says, out of his fullness. What's he full of again? Grace and truth. And out of that fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Isn't that an amazing statement that you receive grace in place of grace already given? Imagine that you have $100 in your pocket, and every time you spend it, your pocket fills up with $1,000. You spend another 100 another 1000 See, that's grace upon grace, friends. It's always multiplying. It's multiplying in the revelation of how we know God and how we see God and how we relate with God. He said, you've already received grace in place of grace already given. And then he has to bring this part in. He says, for the law was given through Moses. Why does he say that? Because he doesn't want you to go back to that. He says, but grace, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to know. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The apostle John does such a descriptive work in revealing who the grace man is and why he came and how we have become the beneficiaries of Christ's fullness. And then John will never use those words again. 21 chapters, he'll never use them again. He's already done a job. He's already defined him. There's nothing ambiguous about this. He's told you who he is. He's told you why he came. He's told you that out of his fullness, you get to receive what he has. He made it so plain, he didn't have to repeat it, friends. You see, John didn't have to mention that word again because he realized that Christ's life was full of grace. Everything he did displayed grace. When he turned water into wine, you know why he did that? That was an act of grace. He didn't have to do that. When he spoke the words to Nicodemus and drew him right out of his pharisaical religion, you know why he did that? Grace. When he met with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at that, and he called her out of that and got her so happy she ran back to town to buy everybody presents and bring them back out to Christ. You know why he did that? Grace. John talked about Jesus walking through the pool of Bethesda. You know what he was doing when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda? Displaying grace. When Jesus fed the 5,000 on the hill, you know what he was doing? That was grace. When Jesus set the woman free who was caught in adultery, you know what that was all about? Grace. When Jesus healed the man who was born blind in John chapter 9, you know what that was about? grace preposterous love when jesus raised his friend lazarus from the dead you know what that was about grace preposterous love when jesus washed his disciples feet you know what that was about grace is what it was about love in fact the scriptures say that he showed the full extent of his love And he got down and took the role of a servant and washed his disciples' feet. That is grace. That is preposterous love. That's a love I don't fully understand, friends. I receive it by faith. Now, continuing in Mary's dialogue here, it says, The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever." His kingdom will never end. And then Mary says, how will this be? She's got a question, doesn't she? How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, look at these words, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. We should take comfort in those words right there. Remember those scriptures I told you a little while ago, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Remember those descriptions of what God's love looks like? And here, the angel saying, no word of God will ever fail. And then Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. In closing, I want to draw your attention to Mary's encounter with that angel, the angel Gabriel. She began her dialogue with Gabriel with a question. How will this be since I'm a virgin? But she ended her encounter with Gabriel with a confession. May it be to me as you have said. Years ago, I began to question what I had been taught concerning the doctrine of grace. I went on a journey, and that journey took me by the cradle. And then that journey took me to the cross. My journey took me to the crypt, and then ultimately led me to a crossroad. My questions were answered along this journey And it was at that crossroad that I considered that it is Jesus plus nothing for my salvation, be it unto me. You see, Mary had found herself at a crossroad also. All of her religious upbringing, she lived under the law too. All of her religious upbringing could not have prepared her for the encounter with the angel Gabriel. There was no precedence. God had never been born. God had never robed himself in flesh. God had never become a man. No virgin had ever given birth. Would Mary look both ways at her crossroad? Well, fortunately for you and I, she did. And preposterous love was given not only to Mary, but to the entire world. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the Christmas message are these. We are never separated from the preposterous love of Christ. The cradle The cross and the choice to choose Him is the greatest gift that a man can unwrap. The Father's love existed long before we took our first breath. And that very same love will be present after we exhale our final breath. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. At birth, our precious Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a cradle. At crucifixion, he would be unwrapped from his seamless robe. At death, Jesus would be wrapped again in linen strips along with myrrh and aloes and then laid in a borrowed tomb. And then again at resurrection, Jesus would shed the grave clothes of death and return to the Father. Through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we receive everlasting life. It's the life without end. It's the perpetual, forever, ceaseless life of Christ. It's the snatch-proof life. It's the life you find when you're on the highest mountain, and it's the same life you find when you're in the lowest valley of life. David said, if I ascend to the heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. It's the, my father is greater than all. It's the never perishing life. It's the, by one sacrifice, he has made us perfect kind of life. Friends, are you suffering needlessly because of sunk cost fallacy? Are you having a difficult time letting go of the religious doctrine that you spent so much time, so much money, so much effort, so much of your resources on, your blood, your sweat, your tears, friends, grace, come on. This is the way the Holy Spirit said to me, grace dismisses the firing squad of what ifs. Come on. There are no what ifs in Christ Jesus, only preposterous love. Our Father will always treat us better than we deserve. That's God, that's good, that's the gospel, and that's grace. Hear the words once again from Oliver Cromwell, as he spoke to Bessie, your lover will live because of your sacrifice, your great sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. Friends, the curfew has been removed. The restrictions, the control, and the regulations of the old covenant have been silenced through the bruised body and the bleeding hands and feet. Of Jesus Christ. The great clapper of the old covenant shall never, ever, ever ring again. Preposterous love was present when Jesus drew his first breath. Preposterous love was also present when Jesus exhaled his final breath with the words, It is finished! From the cradle, with kisses, to the cross with hisses, to the wedding aisle with blisses. Preposterous love cradles us in the covenants of promise and releases hope. The hope that never disappoints us because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us What kind of love is Romans 5 describing? It's describing preposterous love. Father, I thank you so much. When I take time to search for love in the word of God, it always leads me to the cross. I'm thankful for the cradle because without the cradle there would be no cross. But I thank you, Father, that cross was not the finality There was a resurrection. And because of that resurrection, we have resurrection life that you've given us. I thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. Your bloodied body. Your bruised body. Your sacrificed body. Your bleeding hands and feet. The crown of thorns that penetrated your scalp all shout the message of preposterous love. I'm trying to understand this, love. I really am. I'm trying to understand it, Father. Father, I thank you for hares, favor, grace, great grace, grace in place of grace. I'm so grateful I'm so thankful for you, Jesus. You truly are the darling of heaven, sent first in a cradle, and then to a cross, and then to a crib, so that I could come to a crossroad and I could ask the question, what am I going to do with this kind of love? And my answer is, I receive it with grace. In Jesus' name. This is Mark Testerman, senior pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE G-I-V-E to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.